Greetings, dear listeners. Terrific episode this week with our friend Ben Judah, who has an amazing new book out. We'll give it more of an intro as the episode gets going, but you're in for a treat. Before we get started, a reminder to head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet. You'll get access to, among other things, the full conversation with Ben, as well as other subscriber-only benefits. And don't forget to give us a like and review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. But um, it's uh, it's really good to have you back on the show. I is it the Thank third you. time? I think. This might be the third time yeah. you've been on, um, and and it's a it's a it's a particular treat to have you on uh, because you have a new book out, um, and uh, you know we were just sort of gabbing about it uh, just before we started rolling, and I've been texting you, and Shadi's been tweeting. Uh, it it really is a it's a it's a it's a masterful book, uh, and and oh, thank you know, I mean you. You know, I'll just even since this is a, a since this is a personal podcast. Uh, <laughs> Shadi texts me this morning, um, and and he says, uh, "Let me says, God, this is beautiful. I've almost teared up like twice now." And I said, "No joke, oh, wow. me too." And and honestly, I'm not I'm not I'm not a teary person. Uh, but Demir it, it really doesn't is, do that. I don't do that. But it really is. It's 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 a beautiful book. Um, it's called This Is Europe. Um, it is. Um, in some ways, at least in a titular form, uh, a sequel to your previous well-received uh, and, and much-rewarded book, um, uh, This is England. Um, but uh, it's This different. is London. <laughs> this, this is, is London. London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is London. But, but it's different. It's a different book. Um, and I don't know. I, I guess, Ben, just to kick us off, uh, and then we'll praise your, your, your work more— um, <laughs> No, no, no! I could listen to this all Tell night. Tell us how it's different and why it's different. <laughs> you will listen to it all night. We'll we'll get back to it. But 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 tell us tell us why it's different and how it's different and um how you chose to write this book differently and how was the approach different from This Is London? Oh well, firstly, just thank you so much for for saying that. It really kind of means so much to me, especially coming from 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 both you and especially you Shadi but there's so much of the book is about kind of Islam in Europe and about Muslim Europeans and uh, the book yeah. the book began uh, I wrote This Is London and the book that I had written then was about how London had been kind of transformed by immigration into a into a new a new city not the city of kind of eastenders and of sort of sherlock holmes but into a a new weirder more beautiful occasionally more scary uh city that people hadn't really kind of appreciated and look, uh, and looked at and the way that that book works uh is is like this i'm a narrator and i wander around like quite a conventional travel writer and i meet people and then i disappear and then you're you know, you're listening to the people that, that I meet. And I finished that and I was happy with the form that it had taken, but something about me felt sort of unhappy with my own presence in it, as if it had sort of got in the way of listening to these voices. And I decided, okay, I want to write another book. 
what's next door? How about France? Maybe I'll go and try and write a book about France. I'm part French. I speak French. I'm sort of interested in France. And I thought, you know, France is a real kind of theatre of Europe. Like France, for, for Britain at least, is, is Europe. And possibly for, for America too, that we can kind of debate debate that. And I wrote 50,000 words of a book about France, which I absolutely hated. I just hated this book. And in particular, I hated hated me. I hated this very traditional sort of Faroo, Naipaul, sort of Chatwin copy of a narrator, just sort of wandering around France and, and meeting people. And I just thought this is a completely, it's just getting in the way. I just don't, I don't like this. And as I was starting to really hate the sound of my own voice and really hate the sound of the travel writer himself, this really post-colonial British sort of art form, which I don't think is really useful or appropriate for writing about a Europe that you and I have seen in an age of mass tourism constantly. And you're probably watching right now. It's summer. How many of your friends are just like Instagramming from kind of Paris or... Or, or or Athens. It's just not interesting. So I really didn't like that form of travel writing. And then I realized that none of the things that interested me about in this so-called book about France were actually French trends. I was interested in climate change and that revolution. I was interested in the immigrant transformation of Europe. I was interested in Islam in Europe. I was interested in technology changing the very fabric of life of of Europeans, I was interested in supply chains, I was interested really in the way we live now. So I decided I'm just going to delete this book. You know, I didn't delete it, I just closed it forever and and start again. And the idea that I sort of came up with, and I f- first started germinating, actually writing something, you know, for you, Damir, about Rotterdam uh, for the uh, American interest, was... The idea was to, I wanted to write a book about Europe and how European life, European society, just being alive in Europe was very different than it was in previous decades. But I wanted to do it without a narrator. I wanted it to be the closest possible experience to what you get being a journalist, which is you travel around and you you speak to different people who tell you completely different things. Like if The experience of being a journalist is not... I sit in front of myself and I lecture myself about Europe for five years. It's I interview, you know, dozens, hundreds of people. They all tell me something completely different. I get to know Europe in all kinds of different ways through the people. And then I make up my own mind. I wanted to kind of create that in a book for for readers. So that was how those two ideas came together in this idea of, uh, you know, a narratorless, book about Europe, in which you have 23 stories all along that arc of life from, you know, young adults and teenagers, all the way to people on their deathbeds, that all talk about, all tell us these key moments of their lives and all tell us stories that they think and that I think really capture something about this, this new Europe. So, but but, go ahead, Shadi, go ahead. Yeah, so, um, okay, where to begin? Uh, Okay, so I just reread a tweet that I put out earlier today as I was reading, and I said this. I said, with something as wonderful as this book, there's pretty much no need to read anything else. And that might sound hyperbolic. (laughs) 
but I don't think. <laughs> no, like honestly, like I've just been in awe all day. Like I've just been in awe about what I read, and I it is true. I I was close to crying. I mean, I was in a public place, so I didn't want to like actually follow through on that. But like, <laughs> I don't. I mean, I, I like I'm almost speechless, and I I I want all of our. Uh, listeners, viewers, and readers to take what I'm saying seriously and to definitely consider buying this book, getting it from the library, stealing it, whatever it might be. And um, <laughs> because it's making me think differently about how to write about politics. And I want us to get into that a little bit later. Um, I feel like the stuff that I've been working on, like, I, I just don't like, I, I, I want to be, okay. <laughs> It felt like a novel to me, and I've always had this sort of secret or not-so-secret desire to try my hand at a novel at some future point in my life. But what's so amazing, it reads like a novel, but I felt close to the characters. I cared for them, and um, it's just rare to have that in a nonfiction book, and certainly not a nonfiction book that deals with some very big fundamental topics, um, identity, the nation, um, immigration, Islam, religion. I mean, these are the big questions of life and death, of where we find meaning, like everything is here. Anyway, um, it does make me think, though, and I'll, and this will sort of become a question uh, to you, and, and I don't know if Demir has thoughts on this. When I was reading it, I had this thought that no one in your book really seems to have distinct political views or positions. They just have experiences. And there's something about that that just feels more real to me. Like no one is trying to win an argument. Um, there's none of that superficiality that I think I have come to associate with daily politics. And there's just something so refreshing about that, that life is so much life as it's lived. And the subtitle of the book is The Way We Live Now. That's important. That life as it's lived is so much beyond the normal realm of politics. And to capture that, it's just making me think differently about like how I want to approach my own like anyway, so what what do you think about that? Um how political were because I mean you talked to them more than what you actually were able to put in the book. You got to know them on a personal level. These characters, yeah, yeah, yeah. like how how political are they? If that's even the right term to use, and anything else you want to reflect on on that broader question of experience versus ideas? Well, that's a really interesting. It's a really interesting question. Well, basically, I. You know, I've got to say, I work as a pundit and as a think tanker, and I work, you know, with polit political numbers and surveys, you know, all day. But I had grown really, really frustrated with the limitations of that because that's not how Europe feels. And like Europe is a lot of things. Like Europe is there's a Europe of the mind. Europe is an idea, and that could be a mixture of kind of summer holiday memories and smell of coffee and stained glass windows, the cannon, you know, memories of historical collective or individual memories of kind of battles and, and uh, battles and uh, past events. Then there's like Europe as a political system, which I write about often. And that's the Europe of 
politicians that I've profiled, like von der Leyen or Macron or, or, or Draghi, which is about this very kind of small, you know, elite that's a crossover between politics and finance, making, you know, playing bureaucratic politics, essentially, usually about debt. And I found that that was so removed from the increasingly changing pace of the lived Europe, like the Europe of the Rotterdam bus station, which I first wrote about for, for you, Damir, in, uh, uh, for the uh, American interest, the Europe of, you know, the hospital, the Europe of the fields, the Europe of, um, you know, Europe of kind of cheap air flights and the Europe of sort of broken hearts and, and text messages. And I thought I want to kind of completely rebuild my impression of Europe from the ground up, from the eyes up, out of people having uh, experiences. I think you put it really, really beautifully, actually, uh, Shadi. I hadn't quite kind of realised actually that that was that was how it how it works. Like I, you know, on the course of this, um, you know, this journey, for example, I met kind of two two kind of men from the Arab world that have, on the face of it, two very different politics. Like one of them is Majoub. He comes came from Tunisia to France, and he's a kind of very young was a young boy and you know he lives his life and through the course of his life he ends up becoming a salafist imam and he gets there not through any sort of political decision he gets there because of how his life takes him how his faith builds how you know these experiences is his mount him he's almost sort of pulled there and at the same time you know we have in in Berlin, we have, you know, Berlin and, and Europe seen through the eyes of Haidar. And Haidar's a kind of gay man and a refugee from, from Syria who finds himself in Berlin and finds himself finally finally free to express himself and to become a kind of queer dancer and eventually to start doing drag and to kind of find Berlin as a place of place of liberty. And you know, I don't think either of those those guys, you know, they didn't like sit you know, it was life that, that took them there. It wasn't, you know, they didn't wake up one morning thinking, well, I want to be a Salafist imam or I want to be a, a drag queen in, in Berlin. It's this, and I wanted to capture that, that journey of how they got there and to understand how they got there and to crucially feel what it was like to be on each step of that, that journey. So I'd like to say a little bit more, more about the writing process, which is something I don't like about you know, the way that interviews are normally done is that the travel writer, the journalist meets somebody, sits down with them, takes a few quotes and writes it up and then usually packages it with a bit of history, which frankly we can get on Wikipedia these days. And I thought that's just cutting out all of the interesting stuff, like the sense of meeting the person, what they feel like, everything I learn about their, their, their life. That's, that's not giving me, you know, what I get when I meet them and sit down with them. So I, I took a decision to, to do it like, like this, and it was inspired actually by a kind of sort of failure of mine, which is when I was at school, I used to, I thought very seriously about if I wanted to become a painter, I was very obsessed by portraiture. I, you know, I, you know, I, I sort of um, have an art AS level, if that sort of means anything to any kind of British, <laughs> British listeners. And in the end, I just wasn't really good enough and I didn't go to art school. And the thing that's always fascinated me a lot about portraiture is a portrait has to be instantly recognisable to both the sitter and the viewer, as it only could possibly be that person. Couldn't be anybody, anybody else. So you're operating within quite a lot of constraints, but you, I find that within those constraints, you know, painters have always been able to get like an amazing 
sense of character. I'll give you an example, which is the famous um, painting that Goya did of the Duke of Wellington when he entered um, when he entered Madrid, and it it can only be the Duke of Wellington. Like it's the Duke of Wellington would look at it and say, "Of course, that's me." But Goya still manages to capture this look in his eyes of. And there's a lot of debate amongst art historians of is it the look in the eyes of a you know a boy from from Dublin that can't quite believe what's happening to him as on his march to kind of European glory who's who's nervous as he poses for his painting like imitating Napoleon by the greatest Spanish artist of its time or is that look in his eye that you know the ha- the haunting of a man who's fought too many battles so I was really interested in you know operating within those constraints the constraints I set myself was was this I would go find a person, I would interview them, I would record everything. You know, sometimes we're talking of sort of weeks of of interviews. And then I would write up the, I would tell them, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to write up everything you tell me as a short story with quotes. And then you're going to go over it with me. And you're going to check that this is actually how you felt in the way that the Duke of Wellington would have been there over the shoulder of Goyle. Could you, I think I'm, my coat is a little bit, a little bit like this. And I would then follow, as far as possible, the beats and the pattern and of the story as they told it to me. So behind the bits where it's me, you know, it's not their voice in quotes, that's them telling that to me. I've just put it into, so it's more readable. I've put it into, you know, sort of, I've put, I've put it into a different, uh, a different register. So each chapter is their arc, their story, you know, the, their beats, their observations, um, you know, studied with, uh, uh, studied with quotes. And I found that that was the way that you got the greatest intimacy with them. And then I asked them, you know, can you pose for your photo? And then I thought was was really cool because we're all documenting our lives. Like a journalist doesn't turn up and go, I'm going to tell your story anymore. Half these people have Instagram accounts and you know, they're telling their own story, even if it's just a small group of friends, they're telling their own story. And I went, can I can you give me some of your photos? And one of the chapters I'm most proud of as regards the photos is the chapter about Yonut, the Romanian truck driver. This guy has been documenting his life as a transnational truck driver for years and years and years and years and years. He knows his, and to see his photos illustrating his, his chapter, I think is really cool. And I think, you know, kind of break, uh, like a photographer couldn't have got those photos of the, and the squalor and the misery that he's trying to express with them. So that's how it, that's how the kind of technique, um, the technique came together and animating it. People have asked me, how did you get them to tell you all of this? And the answer is actually pretty simple in which uh, during the length of these interviews, I, I really only asked two questions. How did that make you feel? And what happened next? So each time you read a paragraph, just imagine me going, and how did that make you feel and what happened next? And that's quite an unusual question, <laughs> I think, to, to, to ask somebody, even though that's the most important thing in your life is how do you feel? Like that's, you know, people are usually asked, and how did that make you think about the by-election that happened in Avignon six months ago? And you're actually trying to connect something outside of yourself, inside of yourself. So that's how it, that's how the sort of writing sort of, um, uh, sort of came together. So they, I would write it up like that. They would look at it and almost all of them were like actually incredibly moved by it and just didn't change anything and then we did the photos together so ben you know one thing uh 
I'd push you on, and I think it also would, I think, give potential readers um, mm-hmm. another aspect of this book. Um, because while while I think the individual portraits are incredibly rendered, um, and as individual vignettes, uh, you know, it's, I think it's, how many, 22 or 23 individual stories? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, you know, there's so much to relate to. But really, you know, the parts that, that I found... Um, even more of a gut punch than anything in any individual story was actually how you wove it together. And I'd like to maybe have you talk a little bit about that because while, while, you know, I mean, it's almost deceptive in a way when you're reading the book that you're not there. Uh, again, you've, you've written yourself out almost completely from it and it, and it is these portraits, uh, but the book hangs together, together wonderfully. And that's you. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know the, the the other part that that you know you can that you you do enter into the 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 individual narratives is uh through prompts to the reader uh it i think it 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 picks up towards the middle and the end of the book but you say it keeps coming up you know how this feels you say to the reader repeatedly and you know you're taking something from the anecdote and and sort of driving it home so i don't know say a little bit more about the structure of the book um and how you approached because i i think that is the, the, you know, it's not just stenography. It's not just a reporter's notebook, though I think you've, you've presented it very well like that. It's a lot more than that. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, a lot of these are kind of inspirations from, from paintings and about how a portrait, you know, what, is the, what objects does the painter put around the, the portrait? What's the frame? What's the, you know, what's the, what, what's the background? What colors uh, are used? How's he asked him to sit? You know, so that's, that that's a lot of the inspiration there but there are a couple of structures working behind uh the book the first is um a physical journey through europe in which you arrive in europe and you see europe through the eyes of a harbor pilot who is you know piloting um you know these supercargoes into europe you enter europe with him at dawn and then through the 23 chapters that journey you do it through different ways. You cross Europe with a Romanian truck driver, then you cross it with a uh, Spanish, uh, you know, air, 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 air stewardess. You're seeing it again and again. Then you cross it with a, uh, you cross it with an African uh, migrant who's had to cross the whole Sahara and had unspeakable horrors happen to him on his his way there. And then you enter it from various ways. You enter it from the point of view of a Afghan, Iranian uh, uh, sort of refugee trying to come into Europe and the hostility she faces. Then you enter it again from the point of view of a Belarusian uh, political dissident who gets given a bowl of soup when she uh, arrives uh, crossing the borders. You see it, you see the same thing from these different uh, uh, angles. So that's one level of it. And then the next level of it is that arc of life. Because the most important thing really about how do you feel? How are you experiencing this? What does Europe feel like to you? Is how old are you? And like, what phase of life are you in? Are you, are you a child? Are you a teenager? Are you a father? Are you a mother? Are you are you grieving a parent? Are you? And I wanted to have, you know, not to get kind of too too Shakespearean about it. I wanted to have like the seven ages of man or or, or woman there that we would look at the same place again from the point of view of different. Uh, different moments. So some of the chapters I'm the most proud of are, you know, chapter earlier on where we have we experience Europe through uh, 
um, a young couple. You know, she's Turkish from Istanbul. He's Austrian. They meet at Erasmus in Istanbul. And the chapter's about their fertility struggle. And, you know, that's such a, something that people don't really talk about, but that's like a huge part of the way we live now. And then you, we look at Europe again, this time in Sweden, from the point of view of a, um, you know, sort of a, a sort of elderly, you know, sort of single woman grieving her mother and her attempts to find, to find meaning and ultimately to find love, having never married and never had, had children and how that loss shapes. And I wanted to have in the book, really, this is my sort of megalomania speaking, I wanted to have really everything <laughs> there is about to be a human being sort of, sort of for it. So that's the second kind of structure. That's the sort of the second um, structure. And then I wanted to have, and this is, I wanted it to have the great themes of our our times that I see changing Europe. So it's not, you know, a lot, there are slightly more people of immigrant background than the population of, of Europe would be at the precise of this time. And that's because I, I'm just so bored of these books. Like, if you want to read, read a book about Europe, you can read a book about the political Europe, which like, a lot of them are really important. And I might even write one one day, but like, that's very far away from the way we live. You can read a book which is kind of a great white male wanders around Europe and or a great white, white female and lectures you about Europe. And, and most of these are just sort of so kind of like not of the moment. It's sort of the soul of Franz Ferdinand fluttering over Sarajevo. It's just boring. I've like heard it before. And it, I, I, I thought, you know, what I wanted to do was get, capture the new Europe in France. So the third structure is these sort of five transformations that I see. That's immigration and ethnic change and how that feels for people on the, the continent. The second is, and that's really changing the experience of the city. That's how the city is different. The field is different. The village is different because there are different people. Second is technology. And I don't mean that in a kind of abstract, listen to my TED talk way. I'm fascinated by how every human interaction, like the one we're having now or the ones we've been having as, as friends over the years, are basically mediated through these apps that may in fact be quite, you know, they, may not, they may not even last. We may, in the age of AI, be communicating in a completely different way. And the very fabric of every love affair, every friendship, every familial relationship has been altered by, by technology. So I wanted, to capture, uh, I wanted to capture that. I wanted to capture the, the kind of third you know, revolution, which for me was climate change and how every field, every forest, every village, every snowbank and the people who live with them and are experiencing this dramatic change in, in seasons. And I felt that even during the period I was writing the book, that th this feeling that this is happening now, finally it arrived, was incredibly, uh, incredibly intense. You know, the fourth one was uh, supply chains. We talk about them a lot as this kind of abstract thing, like how are we securing those supply chains? But actually, it's still dizzying to me that every kind of product and just put out your hands and touch them has come on this incredible journey which is just not just a machine journey but it's also a, a human journey of people working hard for low pay delivering that product to your door and the final was war and i don't just mean the war in ukraine i actually think the war in syria has been one of the biggest and most transformative wars on on europe for a very long time so i wanted to add all those together and show what i think is that the important sort of mega trend which is Europe is sort of blurring with 
Africa and Asia will continue to do so in all kinds of weird, interesting, kind of odd, sometimes scary, usually often very beautiful, but beautiful ways. So those are the sort of structures um, behind the book. And then, you know, I think really the key thing, and I know this, I think this might interest you, is people have asked me, you know, why is it, we know you as a policy writer. You know, a lot of people have asked me, like, how does Draghi feel about being in a book with a porn star? And I've had to go, well, actually, he's not in it. Like, how do you, how do you feel? <laughs> why have you as a policy guy who's, like, very animated about things like Labour Party's foreign policy or, or debt and works at the Atlantic Council, why have you written a book with no po- policy or no politics in it? And I think that's really sort of missing the point because, you know, all of the great, you know, you've written a lot about this, Shadi, all of the great political philosophies are, you know, conservative, liberalism, socialism, that really questions about how should we live? What is it to live well? And each of these, each of the people in the, the, the book, I don't really like calling them characters, they're sort of real people, I sort of didn't, didn't invent them, but they're still off doing whatever they were doing in the book, <laughs> uh, usually, is each of them has, it, it is asking themselves this question of how do we live now? And is this the way we want to live now? And that's a moral question each of them is asking this moral question is this the way we we want to live now and each of them wants to tell you their story because they think it captures something about sort of how we live now and and do we like it is this the way we want to live some of them think yes some of them think think, no so i wanted to write a book that i think is quite a sort of moral uh a a moral book uh they're posing us these uh these questions well so ben i want to ask you about that um about some of the moral implications. And you're not, there isn't much of, as we've said, of your own views and thoughts in this book. And you're letting, you're letting these individuals speak without any kind of real mediation. But ultimately, you came out of this five-year experience, presumably with some of your own thoughts about what matters, what matters more than you thought when you started, I mean, just, just to kind of prompt you, my own thoughts while reading was, and this is either like a blindingly obvious point or somewhat profound, or maybe both simultaneously, but what you just said, that, about those techn- are the best. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but what you said about technology, um, I don't know. I think that it's really just starting to dawn on me recently and your book captures it really well that a lot of our current struggles we're the first generation or many of us are part of the first generation that has to that has had to live like a fundamentally different kind of life and we don't even fully realize it like i i just um and we're seeing this in debates around fertility rates like we haven't fully absorbed how technological changes, delaying marriage, different attitudes towards family is actually going to completely reshape the world as we know it. I think you're starting to get more of like a deeper realization that this is happening. Um, But I think it's relatively recent. And I think people have been resisting the implications of these just like just profound differences like what happens when you have the first digitally whatever whatever they're called like digital natives like people who 
were bo- I was to say born and raised with TikTok, but I guess they weren't really using TikTok when they were born. But I mean, but people who have no other memory besides using things that have changed the way their mental circuitry actually works. Like we actually don't know how this is going to just have a permanent imprint on them. It will. We just don't know exactly what that means in practice. It has implications for love. And you said that this is a story, this is the Europe of broken hearts. I love that that image. You know, it's beautiful. Um, and I'll just say one more thing that the, so that there's a porn for, uh, for listeners. There is, um, I don't know if I call him a porn star, but he's, well, I guess he is. I don't know if he still is or he's doing something different now, but oh, no, no, he's no, an no, Arab. He's, he's still, still doing it now. Okay. Okay. Well, it's fascinating because he's an Arab porn actor person. He's, he's born and raised Muslim. And then he, I guess he becomes atheist slash agnostic later on. And, obviously moves in a different direction. I was shocked that he was willing to share everything that he shared with you. I was like, wait, I'm, I came out of it thinking this doesn't make him look all that good. Like he's a, you know, a sex addict and he's, he just is obsessed with porn before he even becomes a porn star. And he just, he thinks that this is like the, you see, there are moments of sadness though. Like you can see it and it's like heartbreaking those moments where he lets his guard down and it's sort of like this is there's something like there's something deeper here and uh, my own interpretation is that part of his desire to be a porn star is a way to contend with a very deep sadness that could just be me reading into things because of my own moral and religious biases and that's what we do we come to a story of a character and we kind of project our own experiences onto a completely different person. And we may be fundamentally misunderstanding them in the process. Ben, before you jump in, let me just piggyback on this, and then we can we can shift gears to so many other topics. But Shadi's hitting on this technology thing, and I had also sort of a, a question behind it. It's The thing that jumped out at me on it is is how this sort of digital experience, or even just you know, how, how it shapes people's desires, I think is one of the things that comes through in this. It's also, but not just sexual desires, which is there in several of the stories, how it shapes their relationships and that desire for family and community, but also sort of shapes expectations. You know, one of the things that, that also sort of, you know, jumps out throughout all these stories is that, um, some people, you know, clearly are, are fleeing towards Europe because, um, like the Belarusians, it's right there, and it's the only chance they have to get over the border to to escape things. Um, uh, the the African migrant, however, you know, it's not really clear what's drawing him there. He has some very imperfect ideas of what life will be like over there. There's a sense of disappointment when the reality of Europe and the existence of when some of these migrants get there, what that is, and and the sort of so I don't know. Talk a little bit about that, and also what Shadi said. But again. A little bit more on that 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 like mediation through technology stuff because I think that really is really does shine through for me in this book. Well, this is really a theme of both books. Of this is London and of this is Europe, and I really kind of learned this um, writing uh, one of my favourite chapters of uh, this is London, which is the story of two Afghan 
uh, young men that ended up in a, a sort of corner shop in uh, in in North in North London, and you know both of them told the stories of their lives of essentially being these people in the periphery that were being exposed in an increasing velocity to the dream machine. At first coming out of the TV, then coming out of mobile phones as they spread about through Afghanistan. And they knew they were living in what they would describe as a shithole country in a corner of the world, which was never going to offer them those things. And they were in some ways becoming part of the global American monoculture that was infiltrating their minds and their imaginations and their uh, and their dreams and pulling them towards that that promise. So their desire to come, they wanted to enter that world where they could live like the images that they were they were experiencing uh, on the inter- on the internet. And that's one of the things that really kind of animates um, you know a lot of the migrants coming from Asia and Africa into Europe in 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 this is uh, Europe. So kind of Ibrahim, you know who grows up in Aleppo before the war. He just spent his whole youth just mainlining American movies. He wants to be an actor. The most important thing in the world is to be an actor. When he gets to Germany, he realizes he can't be an actor. Well, there's this kind of actor that I can be. I can be an actor, at least in in porn. And for the point of view of, say, the African migrant uh, Bricko, who, well, actually, he, you know, he's a criminal actually and he's uh involved in a, in a in a gang in gang warfare in um in the ivory coast so he actually has to flee but not from but because you know he, he falls he falls out in the wrong hands of the of the gangs you know him for him europe is this place of freedom and safety for for his family and again it's that kind of dream machine working he's seen it his whole life he's seen it on on facebook he's a very active facebook poster and all the way along his journey, he's sort of leaving as he loses his wife and he loses his daughter and he ends up in France only with his, his son. You know, the sort of original reasons for his flight really on the other side of the, of the Sahara. He's still posting messages on, on Facebook to the, the boys back home going, will your children ever walk on European soil? You keep talking. You know, it's so important to him that, that they know that he's made it to this world of uh, to, to this world. So I think there's the dream machine, which is reshaping all of our souls. And in the way that I, you know, Instagram, the adverts inside Instagram stories have made me long for things I probably don't want. Imagine how that's affected <laughs> you if you live in Accra or you live in, uh, you, you live in, you live in Kabul. And then there's almost a Hegelian story, which I felt in this, writing this book. So one of the moments that didn't make it into the, the book bits with with me as a narrator, but did make it into uh, thanks to Josh Glancy, our, our mutual friend and journalist and uh, editor at the Sunday Times, did make it into the the Sunday Times. I wanted to, I felt that I, I I felt that I had become, you know, so abstract, and that we were living in a particular world where sort of abstract thinking's so rewarded and kind of cynicism and irony is very rewarded online that I felt in order to sort of inoculate myself against that, I needed to take the migrant journey, at least a tiny part of it myself in order to understand it. And the part that I was became fascinated by was that at this particular moment, a large amount of African migrants were crossing the Alps through the passes of Hannibal and of, and of Napoleon uh, into France, avoiding the railways and the, the buses and the, the roads where 
they were going to be stopped by the police because they'd arrived in, in Italy, claimed asylum in Italy, and they're not allowed to go to go on to France until their status is, is cleared. And I found myself one of these, these nights with the people smugglers, you know, just crossing this mountain pass with this long line of African migrants before me and, and behind me. And at one moment, a guy kind of taps me on the shoulder and he goes, mon frère, I can't continue. My brother, I can't continue. And he puts his you know, young, young daughter on my, on my shoulders. And I found myself carrying this, this, ch- this child on my shoulders thinking, oh, my God, if we're busted now, I'm going to be done for people for people smuggling. I felt like I'd suddenly slipped into their world. It's the same as my world, but all the structures that keep me safe and my life ordered are there to repel them. But also I felt, you know, and I don't mean at all, I'm not a philosopher, I don't mean this at all, that I felt like Hegel as in I was coming out of any interesting ideas, but I was reminded of this moment, perhaps one of the few moments I've ever understood from Hegel, where he, Hegel describes uh, seeing Napoleon on horseback outside leaving Jena on reconnaissance. And Napoleon describes him, you know, leaving Jena. And he goes, I saw the Weltgeist on, on horseback. I saw the spirit of the world on, on horseback. And Hegel believed that sort of history was, you know, freedom becoming conscious of itself. Unfortunately, unlike the Duke of Wellington, he made the mistake of thinking Napoleon somehow embodied freedom, but not everybody's, per- not everybody's perfect. But I felt at that moment, like I had the world spirit that was changing Europe on my shoulder, that there was this, Great quest for freedom embodied by the migrants coming from the south. They were coming to seek freedom. So they were coming to seek their dreams and to seek the ability and the freedom to do it. Freedom from poverty, freedom from want, freedom from climate problems, freedom to be themselves. And then there were these great wars for freedom, which are in the book, like in Ukraine, all these failed revolutions that have been a steady drumbeat of the you know, of the politics of Eastern Europe that, you know, Damir, uh, you've been working on for, 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 for forever. And that that quest for freedom, two of them were, were coming together. And then I looked at the book and I thought, wow, maybe Hegel was onto something because almost every story about me realizing it is about somebody trying to find, trying to seize that freedom or, or, or find that, uh, that freedom. Like one of the stories, which is the complete opposite of a migrant story, is the story of Jean-Marc. He's a historic and exceptionally good uh, winemaker in Burgundy, couldn't get more enracinated into the soil or more of a symbol of, of Europe than somebody who specialises in, in white Burgundy. And this, his story is all about how he didn't want to become a winemaker. He wanted to become an actor. And how will he negotiate his desire for freedom with his, uh, with his, his family? So actually, I felt that, that sort of freedom and that sort of quest for it is actually, that's what I discovered I guess reading my own book was a, a major, major trend of it. That's great. Uh, so much there. I, I do want to just dwell on migrants, refugees, and you know, as we've talked about, they figure quite prominently in the book. I'll just say that my impression—it's you know also based on my own experiences—but this kind of confirmed it even more. Like Europe does seem like a pretty terrible place for migrants, refugees, and immigrants of any sort. Like you come out of it thinking, of course, it's still a lot better than whatever people have in their home country. I mean, relatively speaking, all these European um, countries are a vast improvement, but there is like a darkness. I mean, these, these immigrants will change Europe. So when we talk about Europe now, 
um, it's going to be a different Europe in 10 years or 20 years, and they're going to transform it in one way or another. But they're just, I don't know if you agree with that. Maybe I'm exaggerating that a little bit, but maybe that was one impression. But also that you do have some characters in the book who talk about like the Arabs or the Muslims or crime in Berlin. And I think it does have a kind of echo to some of the debates we have in the U.S. as a sort of dystopian sense of like urban squalor. Like things are decaying before our very eyes and it's because of the so-called non-natives. It's because of these either minorities or discontents or people who have nowhere else to go and they are and then it's just chaos in a sense. There's a sense of lawlessness. There's a sense that things will never be the same again, a sense of being unsettled. I'm just curious. So there's a lot there, obviously, but take that where you will. I mean, Demir, I don't know, maybe before Ben responds, I mean, what what did you think about the way that um, migrants and Arabs and so forth are depicted? No, for sure, but but I think you know the 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 funny thing is is that that it's sometimes it's 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 the migrants themselves that have these sort of opinions about Europe and the lawlessness and things like that. So it's not just yeah, it's not just exactly. Whitey being unhappy about it, uh, which I think is again like a, a good texture that's there. But oh yeah, to be I mean, clear, it's usually other minority groups that are being quote unquote racist or bigoted towards. The other mind, yeah, it's not actually really coming from at least in this book from white folks all that much. No, but but Ben, you know, I just again to build on Shadi's thing because I, I was literally my question as well. Um, maybe maybe to to put a, a sharper point on it. Um, no one will dispute that what happens on America's southern border is not barbarous and uh, inhumane and and really troubling, and that the the trials and tribulations of people, you know trekking from the Darien Gap across Central America on foot uh, to get to America and then face, you know, uh, the situation in Mexico with the wall and everything else, uh, that that's in any way humane and that that's not manufactured by America. But still, you know, I the thing that jumped out at me is, you know, you're saying all these people are looking uh, to Europe as a place of freedom to either develop themselves in some, again, way mediated by technology and these sorts of visions and this like dreamscape, freedom from worse situations. But I wonder if you were to write, you know, uh, a similar story about America, whether um, there's still something more optimistic about America than Europe, that there's a lack of optimism to it, even as all these people try and find a better life for themselves. Is that fair? Is that a fair way to put it? Let me just... Take take a little bit little bits of that. Um, I so I really committed to actually not just reporting it but writing it in when I was in quarantine, actually in the the United States in uh, my uh, parents in law's uh, house in in Massachusetts in 2020. And at that particular moment, I was very inspired by old books. Like a lot of us, I've been reading, um, you know, the Decameron, and I wanted felt what I wanted to do was like Boccaccio, gather all these different voices to talk about modern Europe in different tales. And then at the same time, you know, I've kind of, you know, pretty Jewish person. I've kind of studied with a rabbi and kind of teach tutors of Hebrew, ancient and modern for, for a long time. I was very inspired by, by the Talmud in that sense, that, 
if you kind of study the Talmud, one rabbi goes this, another rabbi immediately interjects, a third jumps in and says that's completely not true. And the, the, the idea that you, you have to look at something again and again and again from different points of, points of view. So let's just look at Berlin, since you kind of mentioned it. And I think the question of kind of self-realization is, is, tied up, is tied up there. So we see Berlin twice. We see it firstly from the point of view of Abud. Abud is, you know, he's a Syrian refugee. He's delivering packages for, uh, for, for Amazon. He's got himself trapped in this situation where he's working as a black market Amazon driver for a Turkish, uh, you know, criminal enterprise. And he's, uh, to put it lightly, and he hates Berlin because he feels that he's living in the soft authoritarianism of the app. He's traumatized by what he's experienced. He's knocking on people's doors to sort of deliver a sort of packet of toothbrushes or, or toothpaste or, 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 or something. And he can't do 30 seconds too long or take the wrong road about the app trilling at him and trilling at him and trilling at him. And the Berlin that he sees, he feels that it's not even a, a European city anymore. It's a kind of Middle Eastern city dominated by Turkish Turkish gangs where the Germans don't want to face up to the, the crime that uh, it exists there and are exploiting all of these people, that there's this European, sort of a white European overclass that's sort of exploiting them. And he wants to go to Dubai. And he, I think, is one of the only people in the book that doesn't feel himself European. He wants to go to Dubai because his wife is so traumatized from the, the journey. She's incredibly depressed. She's at home. You know, she's really struggling. And he thinks if he can get her back to the Middle East, you know, things will will be better. And then we see Berlin from the point of view of Haidar, who's a kind of gay man, a refugee from, uh, uh, from Syria. And from him, Berlin really is this landscape of, you know, freedom and, and joy and self-discovery as he, you know, discovers himself in the bathhouse, as he discovers himself through, through, through drag, as he makes these completely different cycle of friends, as he comes to feel that it was if he was always supposed to be in Berlin. And actually Berlin is both of those things. It's, and that, you know, Europe's going to offer and churn out these two different things. And for people who are born in Europe, you know, I'm British, obviously, I can't keep a secret of that, though I'm sort of also <laughs> French, but, but I'm, I'm mostly British. And he, there are two, there's a chapter in that story, which I think is quite challenging, there's a chapter in the book, which I think is quite challenging for a Remain reader. And it's the, it's the kind of story of Yonu, the Romanian truck driver, and like, what is the single market? It's a trading system. What is trade? Well, it's ultimately like men driving trucks. And he's shuttling backwards and forwards across Europe. He feels he's stuck in this gray grid. He never sees anything apart from lorry bays. He's what's called a posted worker. So he's like spending months traveling around the Netherlands and sort of France and uh, the UK, but always on a, a Romanian, uh, Romanian wage. And he hates it. He hates he hates this, this system. He hates this grit. You know, he feels that, that Europe is, you know, this sort of landscape of exploitation and moral hypocrisy. And whatever order there exists on the other side of the loading bay is entirely based on Eastern European, uh, Eastern European cheap labor. And when he travels around you know, sort of Europe. He has these moments where he both dreams of coming to the UK, but he hates these immigrant areas, but he hates other Romanians and, and how they behave. And, and really all he wants is to, is to go back and to live in the village that his family lived in under communism in a sort of collective farm situation. And that's his dream. I think that's very challenging for a Remain-coded reader. But that's, 
that's Europe. But then again, we've got a chapter that's very challenging for a leave reader, which is the story of, I think I mentioned before, a story of Andy and Sezen, the sort of Turkish and um, Austrian couple. They meet on Erasmus. He chooses to actually follow her to Istanbul, where she's a, she's a lawyer, an interesting inversion of the immigrant, immigrant story of a kind of, you know, sort of uh, a sort of white uh, Christian man migrating to a Muslim capital and learning the language and and fitting in, it's about their their love story. And for them, Europe is this landscape of um, cross-cultural exchange and freedom and possibility and hybridity. And I think that's very challenging for a leave readership because, firstly, the Erasmus scheme that they meet on is being taken away from British people and not really being replaced by this sort of claim they're going to replace it. But it's not really happening. And, you know, that's the lived Europe which... If you insist on seeing Europe exclusively as the Europe of Macron or, or Draghi, you're, you're not going to see. And you know, Europe's really sort of both of those things. So it's very important to me that we see it from again and again and again from these different perspectives, because it's not one thing. And in fact, like Europe as a, as a continent can only really be seized or, or, or seen. Look, it's not a painting; it's a gallery. You know, you can only appreciate uh, you can only appreciate it by seeing again and again and again through all these these different uh, uh, sort of portraits. I want to move to Europe. <laughs> oh well, it should come. <laughs> I think you should You've move to Berlin, poor, and then I can and then I can do a portrait of you in Berlin. <laughs> I can complete my well, so. So, so Ben, here, here's 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 um, uh, the other theme we haven't touched on, um, and that's the climate. You mentioned it earlier on when we started talking, um, and uh, it's, I mean, it's tied up in a couple of things, and I'm struck by how you 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 weave it through. Uh, there's a story of uh, uh, the Russian LNG plant in the north and the permafrost melting underneath it, and you know, uh, that's one. Um, I suppose there's a there's that sense of planetary degradation in the first story, as you're saying, uh, the uh, the uh, truck driver, the Dutch, the the, the Dutch uh, ship oh. ship uh, mm, yeah. pilot, and talking about uh, just recognizing that in the containers that he's bringing to Europe, it's uh, just feeding shit into Europe's mouth, if I remember correctly. Um, yes. But then perhaps perhaps the 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 maybe the the most moving, but also really interesting chapter is the penultimate one um with the uh see spanish uh yeah the spanish yeah, yeah, sailor yeah, yeah. the spanish sailor uh who's based in in phuket and it's a it's a chapter it really takes you out because he's he's on a ship uh doing illegal fishing in antarctica but he also seems to snap to it that the the that the world is getting destroyed but this is what I guess I wanted to press you on because the, you, you, or he twins it. I'm not saying you did. It's, it's his story. But he twins the degradation of, of, of the planet with the decline of Europe in a very serious way. I thought that was really interesting. And maybe, you know, at least what jumped out at me there, that it's, it's sort of that's it's that kind of. Um, well, it's like a white person thing that the world is coming to an end. You don't get that kind of pessimism from. Uh, certainly none of the Asians in the in the in the book, and you do have more of the optimism, I think, from a lot of the sort of migrants. But you have this kind of yeah. incredibly gloomy gloomy pessimism from a lot of the the you know the white Europeans in the book. 
don't know. Talk a little bit. That's just a prompt for you to talk about the climate dy uh, dynamic, but that's just sort of my impressions uh, of that part in any case. Um, well, I think a lot of it depends on age. Like, you know, there is there is quite a lot of gloom from some of the older kind of white and sort of European-born Europeans in, in, in some of the chapters. And like, um, I think the younger people don't really really feel that. And I think that's, again, it's sort of really like, where are you on that that journey through through life? So what that chapter, you know, what that chapter w was about is I wanted to find somebody who was the last of his kind. He felt himself that he'd been part of an ancient European tradition, that of the Spanish sailor, which is now coming to an end. Like Europe's not a sort of maritime continent anymore, the sort of European sort of coastal fishing villages don't really exist in that way like the sort of world of the spanish sailor is over like the the the, the high seas it's really the sort of domain of the sort of philip the philippine of the working class from the philippines or from from asia or from uh or from asia uh, uh or from asia there and i also wanted to sort of give us a chance to kind of see europe from outside like having entered europe through multiple points of view circled it i wanted us to then you know, see it from from very, uh, you know, very far away. But in terms of like his experience of climate kind of breakdown is, you know, really there are so many, so many of these people have had this feeling in the last five years that the long prophesized breakdown is finally here. The Russian gas worker starts to realize it when he sees for the first time giant reindeer herds just dying in front of his eyes because the, the sort of feeding cycles are out of whack and diseases are, are coming up when he watches through these swarms of mosquitoes that the, um, the ice isn't freezing when it, should, when it should, it's melting when it shouldn't. Like, that's his realization. He's a, he's a young man that's dedicated all of his, he, he, you know, the prime of his manhood into building this LNG station. And that chapter is really, really about his realization of the horror of what he's done and of what the whole system is pushing us to do, which is to sort of degrade and destroy our kind of natural environment. Then there's, we see climate breakdown from the point of view of somebody who's trying to act out, who, who is actually in a way quite ideological, it's the point of view of David. And David is, you know, sort of a, an urban guy, a sort of laptop worker from, um, uh, from Lisbon, you know, married to uh, his um, wife's actually from Slovakia. It's another one of these transnational marriages. And he tries to go back. He tries to go back to the land and live, admittedly through online working, to live in, uh, live in a sort of village in the hinterland that's depopulating. And, and the chapter's about can he, can he manage? Can he manage to go back into this dying village, part of this huge belt, which you don't have in the United States of America, this enormous belt of dying villages if they're not immediately on a coastal beauty spot that extends from Portugal all the way to, to, to Bulgaria that's just been emptied out. And his dream of going back is shocked by forest fires that burn his house. And then he, he sets himself this quest of can he learn how to become a shepherd? Can he bring back these old techniques to sort of save the in, environment? And then we see it from the point climate breakdown from the point of view of Burgundy, where the winemakers of Burgundy are, you know, really fretting that they're up against a doomsday clock, that if the temperature rises to, um, you know, three degrees, it will just 
it's just not going to be possible to grow those grapes and further the taste of Europe itself is is going to change. And that chapter is about them realizing that climate change could could destroy European culture and take away all the things we uh, we sort of hold dear. And it and the chapter begins with the uh, wine the winemaker whose whose story it is, you know, traveling to South America as all of these elite Burgundy wine families are now traveling to Japan, traveling to England. He's traveling to. Patagonia, looking for new places to plant uh, uh, to plant vines where it's going to be cooler, where they can where they can last. As they, and one of the moments that really struck me in that book is if you go to to to, to Burgundy, which I hope you, you you do, and maybe we should we should all go to go 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 together. Is if you go to Burgundy and you go into the the um, the, the churches and the monks have the records of when the Vendage happened, going back really centuries, like going back to the early Middle Ages, where they say, on this and this date, we collected the, the, the harvest. And it's pretty much the same date until 10, 15 years ago. And now it's weeks and weeks and weeks, it's months out. And these men are living that in a single generation. You know, they're, 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 they're living that. So that's how we see the climate disaster from various points of, of view. And the last way we see it is from the point of view of a, um, a refugee from uh, Tehran, an Afghan refugee, and she's her quest to come to Europe is a quest about freedom from men. Her whole life, you know, she described to me that like she saw the bars of her cage, and the bars of her cage were, were, were men, and it's about coming to her freedom. And she is assigned to a woman-only oil uh, olive production line in a Greek island, and then is basically abandoned during forest fires to. To be, to be basically to be burnt to death, and she's only narrowly rescued for a kind of refugee network that managed to contact the coast guards uh, in time. So those are all the different ways we see climate uh, uh, breakdown and disaster. That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one. Help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus. Thank <laughs> you.